1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Annabella Breck, and today we'll be talking to Liza Black about her new book, Picturing Indians, Native Americans in Film, 1941 to 1960. Liza Black, welcome to the show. Thank you so
0: much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: Liza, I wonder if you could kick things off today by telling us a bit about yourself.
0: Sure. Well, I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation, and I'm an assistant professor of history and Native American and Indigenous Studies at Indiana University in Bloomington. Because of the pandemic, I'm living and working in Southern California, so I am speaking to you from the land of the Chumash Nation, past, present, and future caretakers of this land. And let's see, my background is that because of my identity and citizenship in the Cherokee Nation, I became really fascinated, of course, with Cherokees and Cherokee history, but also more broadly with Native American history and even Native American studies. So I would say that as a child, and I write about this in the preface to the book, I was tremendously impacted by living with my grandparents for a time and visiting with their extended family throughout Oklahoma. And I had one relative in particular who worked for the Cherokee Nation and was um, you know very immersed in the Cherokee community. And spending time there with her and with all of these extended family members just really impacted me. And I became just completely fascinated with it. And I still, I still am. Um, and I would say that I was especially impacted by visiting these performance spaces where Cherokee workers were performing as sort of historic Cherokees. And I found it really fascinating to watch them perform, but then also speak with my aunt afterwards, privately, sort of, I was sort of going back and forth in that moment between the front stage and the backstage. So I went on to college and then graduate school, I decided to work exclusively in American Indian history. And I decided to work with Richard White at the University of Washington, who had just published The Middle Ground. So he was my mentor at University of Washington. When I entered graduate school, I was planning to do a dissertation on Cherokee Nation. But I just got um, completely turned around by my interest in cultural studies, and especially cultural studies around pop culture, and especially movies. And I also had a Navajo friend who was working in a television series and as an extra. And there was this moment I write about this in the preface too. There was this moment where all of these of the Native American students who were involved in the Native American student group on campus, we all were just together eating pizza and watching the show looking for Victor to come on screen. And I thought it was such a fascinating moment because here we were watching the show, not in the way we were meant to watch it, but simply looking for Victor and being really excited when Victor came on the screen. So I found that sort of really interesting to read against a television show or a movie and to look for your friends or family, as opposed to watching the storyline. And I also was really intrigued by the fact that Victor made so much money as an extra, as opposed to the rest of us who were working, you know, sort of minimum wage or just barely above minimum wage jobs. He was making like twice that. And all he had to do was walk in a room and drink a cup of coffee.
2: That's great. Thank you so much, Liza. And how did you come to write Picturing Indians?
0: Well, um, it was an extension of my dissertation. I was lucky enough to have funding for my doctoral work. So I moved to Los Angeles and I was able to live there for three years writing the dissertation and being immersed in the film archives essentially on a daily basis. So that meant I looked at documents that it appears no one has looked at, or they looked at them and didn't find the meaning that I found. So that's how I came to write Picturing Indians, is I had the opportunity to, because of funding and I had that support, I had the opportunity to really immerse myself in the archival documents and to really truly prove that Native people were part of these films, not, as, not in terms of representations, but in terms of being employees on these film sets.
2: Chapter one gives us a handful of case studies that, when placed in conversation with one another, gives us a snapshot of what kinds of deeply inauthentic native characters film became acquainted with in the 1940s and 50s. Can you tell us more about why you chose these four films in your first chapter and what kinds of ideological heavy lifting they do in the service of settler colonial narratives?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And there was a lot of discussion about whether or not I should open the book with, with chapter one and whether the first chapter should be of a different nature. So I appreciate you you know, asking me about the first chapter, which... The subtitle of the first chapter is American Indians and White Narcissism. So this is really the only chapter that looks at the films as text. So most people expect the book to be a critique of films and a critique of representations of Native people. But it really isn't. It really is sort of a labor history in in a sense. So this chapter, it does, however, analyze the films as narratives. And as you say, I choose films to analyze that do some ideological heavy lifting. Now, I talk about many films in this chapter, but I probably do something unexpected in that one of the first films I talk about extensively in this chapter is Valley of the Sun, a relatively unknown film that did not make much money at all. But I chose this film because it demonstrates something I saw repeatedly, which is the love triangle, meaning Native characters come in at the service of a white couple who are struggling to sort of define their relationship and struggling perhaps between choosing between partners. So I I use Valley of the Sun to sort of do the ideological heavy lifting around the marginalization of Native characters because they're written into scripts only to support white heteronormativity. So that's the first is, is Valley of the Sun. Then I use another relatively unknown film called Hudson's Bay, which is sort of a historical film in that it's, it's talking about the fur trade, but I use it to highlight something that again, I saw over and over again in these films. Which is interracial friendship, meaning friendship between a Native American man and a white man. And I should I should pause just for a moment and um, perhaps let your listeners know that I actually watched all of the films in this book. I watched I don't know two hundred fifty somewhere between two hundred fifty and three hundred films in the writing of this book. So I didn't just read what other people said about the book, and I didn't read synopses and and write about these movies based on that I actually watched them and took notes and so that's how I am able to say that there are themes which emerge if you look at these as a whole so back to Hudson's Bay I chose I chose Hudson's Bay to sort of emphasize this storyline in which native men are friends with white men and you might think this is to say something about native people but in fact just like with love triangles, these friendships often sort of say more about white men in that it's, it's used to present the white men as sort of being um, open-minded, as being culturally sort of flexible and culturally knowledgeable. I mean, many of these friendship films have white men who speak native languages extensively, which is sort of um, a bit a bit mind-boggling, and, and that same sort of recognition is never given to the Native men who are able to speak English. Then I turn to a film called Black Gold, also not well-known at all, and I use this film to talk about something that's actually quite rare, yet i would argue important nonetheless which is the representation of contemporary native people meaning people who native people who are living in the same time period in which the film is made so i use this film black gold and it's about this native man charlie who's played by anthony quinn and charlie seems to perhaps be an osage man they never say which tribe he's from but charlie is struggling because Charlie is sort of a traditional native man, yet he sells his land for oil, um, for oil royalties. He makes a significant amount of money and this sort of leads to his downfall and it leads to him being just profoundly uncomfortable in situations in which everyone is white and, it leads to him sort of being addicted to the Kentucky Derby and addicted to winning. Um, and he dies as sort of a result of his commitment to the Kentucky, Kentucky Derby and to this really expensive horse that he purchases that, that wins. So that's the third film, Black Cold, that deals with modern Native American people. And then the fourth, which just as unlikely as <laughs> the other three, is this film called Rhythm um, Cowboy. So there were a handful of comedies I watched, and I chose Ride'em um, Cowboy because I think it does some fascinating ideological heavy lifting in that it critiques representations of Native people through caricature, through, through mockery. Um, they create this character Rainwater, who is a modern Native American man who is sort of um, playing that front stage, backstage aspect that I brought up at the beginning of our conversation to his advantage to sell goods to tourists. So Rainwater sort of, when he's in private, wears glasses. He likes to read books. He wears sort of like a button-down shirt and dress pants. But as soon as he sees tourists or anyone he could potentially sell these sort of um, tourist goods. To he immediately changes into something sort of personifying the sort of caricature of, of native people. Um, and then there's this whole extended scene in which Rainwater plays these tricks on on Abbott, the character who play the, the character played by Abbott to trick him into believing that he is a dummy when he's not actually a dummy and he's trying to make him sort of lose his mind. And he does sort of lose his mind because he's obsessed with Indians and he thinks they're everywhere. and He thinks they're a threat. So, um, you might be wondering, well, what about Westerns? (laughs) Because that's what people think this book is about, but this book is about native people in film. So I looked at any film with a native character and there were many Westerns included in that, but I was sort of really interested in these outliers and what work they were doing. And, and in some ways, they were doing the same work as Westerns, but in other ways, they were, they were sort of challenging the ideology of Westerns, Westerns especially, especially really the, the, the interracial friendship films and these comedies.
2: In chapter two, you focus on the largely hidden talents and labor of Native actors who, whose experience in Hollywood was partly enabled by labor organizing and simultaneously restricted by non-Native producers who prescribed their own ideas about which Native actors were quote-unquote real enough to play Native characters as well as non-Native actors who perform Native identities both on and off screen. So who were some of the Native actors who managed to win acting roles? And what do their experiences tell us
0: about performance, race, identity, and sovereignty? Great question. Thank you. I think I'd like to highlight too, And I'd also like to sort of bring forward this this point, which is that this book is almost exclusively about men. As far as the Native people who I'm analyzing, it's almost exclusively about men. They were um, really not any native women working continuously in as actors for pay living in Los Angeles. So my focus in this chapter, I would say two really important people to sort of highlight and maybe speak about for a moment would be the man who graces the cover of the book, which is Harry Smith. His stage name was Jay Silverheels. He was from the six nations reserve. So he was a Haudenosaunee man and Mr. Smith worked for decades as an actor, and he absolutely won significant acting roles. Perhaps some people will remember that he played the role of Tonto on the television series, The Lone Ranger and Tonto. So I would say Harry Smith is sort of the embodiment of the native actor, the native male actor, that is in the 1940s and 1950s. So he did manage to win acting roles. But what I emphasize in the book is how poorly paid he was. So he brought a tremendous amount to the table, right? He was a great actor. He had great presence. He was a very handsome man. So he was able to generate money and fulfill a role for the studios that they expected and yet he never even made enough money to buy a home in Los Angeles. He lived his entire life there as a renter. In fact, I found his home uh, where he rented at the corner of Sunset and Bronson. And it's just a little one-bedroom apartment. Um, likewise, Daniel Simmons, whose stage name was Chief Yalachi, was a citizen of Yakima Nation. He lived for decades in L.A., much like Harry Smith. And he, too never made enough money to purchase a home in Los Angeles. He too was a renter. In fact, he lived in East LA in what is called a granny flat behind somebody else's home. So both of these men performed for decades. Both of of these men brought a great deal of profit to the studios. And yet they themselves did not even attain sort of personal autonomy in terms of owning a home. And and that perhaps I wouldn't need to critique that if men like them who also played Native people were also paid poorly, but they were not. Um, the, one of the points I make in this chapter is that the white men who took on significant roles as actors did make significant amounts of money, and they did own homes, and they did live in more expensive areas in Los Angeles.
2: And these labor discrepancies continue into chapter three, where you turn eastward from Hollywood, looking mainly at how native individuals and communities in the Navajo nation at Standing Rock and elsewhere responded to non-native producers, again, seeking out native labor and extras who were quote unquote real enough. What did this kind of labor mean for native peoples and where does this labor fit into broader historical processes and context?
0: Yes, exactly. They, what I would what I argue in the book is the studios were desperate for native people to work as extras in their films in the background. And what that labor meant for native people, I argue, is survival. The, the 1940s and 1950s are a really difficult time period for Native people and in the sense of financially, economically, that Native people had, have been, had been disempowered, Native people were still suffering from the effects of boarding schools, relocation, removal. Um, many tribes were suffering under the possibility of termination. Many tribes were also suffering from environmental destruction with all sorts of dam projects going on in this period and all sorts of mining projects going on in this period. So that's how I situate the con the the, the labor of Native extras in the nineteen forties and nineteen fifties, is that Native people had tremendously restrained choices. And this was a choice that was a very short-term com- commitment. It was basically physically safe work to do and it was relatively high paying. I have a section in this in this chapter about mining on the Navajo re- reservation and what it would have paid. And working as an extra paid more in many in many circumstances. Now that's not long-term work. It's not a sort of long-term solution to poverty. But it did, in fact, pay as much, if not more at times than working in a mine did. And of course, we know that working in mines led to horrible long term health consequences for Navajo people.
1: Slash NBN 50 to get 50% off.
2: In chapter 4, you look behind several layers of racialized makeup and costume to discuss how producers fabricated an inauthentic yet authentic native lead. How do all of these components of doing red face, skin tone, wig, eyes, fake noses, and more coalesce in the quintessential native lead? And how does all of this race fabrication consolidate into producers' pursuits of more profits?
0: Great question. You've really read my book. I appreciate it so much. (laughs) So usually I I feel like um, readers really enjoy perhaps this chapter the most, and this chapter is perhaps the most unexpected. Because what I found in the archives over and over again were all of these documents from the people involved in the production of the film about makeup and noses and eyes and wigs. I mean, there were, there were times that they would use contact lenses to darken people's eyes when they they were white actors playing native people, they would use contact lenses to create Brown eyes. And of course they would have hundreds and hundreds of wigs sometimes flown out to these sets for all of these extras. So, to me what i'm what i saw looking at those rec- records was the embodiment right there in the archive of race itself and this is what they're sort of fabricating on these sets is this false story about race in that they firmly believed that native people had to look a certain way they had to be a certain skin tone and And especially the nose, that the nose had to be really quite pronounced, and they would even apply these prosthetic noses to create that affect. And this was all the more important, as you say, with leads. They really didn't do much transformation to extras, although they still did, even when they relocated to reservations and hired Native people, they spray-painted them nonetheless. And they put them in the really cheap braided wigs with the headband attached nonetheless. And as you say, this was really in the pursuit of more profit. From their perspective, this is what Americans expected. They expected to be able to identify Indian people with just one quick glance. And they absolutely expected that to be communicated through... Braids and buckskins. So this was absolutely how they pursued more profit, and well, perhaps, perhaps we'll I'll say more about that when we get to chapter five and six about what this what this leads into. <laughs>
2: Your discussion of this conundrum of authenticity continues on into chapter five, where you focus in on the, quote, collision between Native employees and the filmic Indian, end quote. The former being members of long histories and a range of modern identities, and the latter being a composite caricature of a cartoon-like Native person stuck in time. How and why did studio employees and film creators go through a considerably great deal of struggle to transform the bodies of actual native people into something non-native creators had convinced themselves was quote unquote authentic
0: The how is so much easier to explain the why um, takes us takes us far and wide so the, so the how was that they purchased, paint that was called Indian paint. They purchased wigs called Indian wigs and they planned months ahead of time to ship all of these items out to these locations for shooting. They also, I found, spent just incredible amounts of money on wigs for leads, especially for women. So when white women played native women, the studios would spend hundreds and hundreds in today's money, thousands of dollars with really complex wigs to try to sort of make them as realistic as possible. Yet, of course, they never they never did this with extras. The question of why, why did the studio employees go through this struggle to transform the bodies of actual Native people into something they convinced themselves with authentic? That is the far more interesting question. And it seems to me that this is rooted in the very first moments of contact between Indigenous people and Europeans, where Europeans just seem to have been unable to allow Native people to define themselves and create their own representations and take those representations seriously. So I would say, sort of in historical contact itself, European Europeans and European descendants have sort of removed that that space for Native people to be creators of their own identity and their own look. And and what's so fascinating is on set you have these moments when Native people are trying to say they're trying to challenge these images. Um, in fact, chapter five is called A Bit Thick because one of the Navajo men, as he's sitting there being having this brown paint applied to his brown skin says, aren't you putting it on a bit thick, right? Which to me is his way of saying more than just the makeup itself is thick, but just this whole representational process is thick, right? That, that, that there's this sense in which there's too much, there's just too much. Um, and then and then you have other examples of Native people joking about the costumes, joking about falling off of horses, joking about making inter, inter-tribal jokes where they're sort of making fun of other tribes, things like that on set. So I, I do sort of find it interesting that the studios so unwilling to change their ideas about Native people, even as they were interacting with Native people on set. Um, And I think Native people found that rather humorous as well. These
2: increasingly intertwined threads of performance, racialization, manipulation, and especially authenticity all convene in chapter six. Here we see how studios and producers who embarked on extensive projects to affirm their preconceived notions about native authenticity, manipulated that knowledge as well as native employees to consolidate creative control. Can you tell us a bit more about how they sought to deny native employees of their modernity and how that denial was projected on screen?
0: Yes, absolutely. So One example, the first that comes to mind when you ask about how the studios would deny Native people their modernity, well, I can think of many examples, but the first that came to mind was um, this man Cecil Mears, a a citizen of Muskogee Creek Nation, who reached out to me and shared his story with me of working on the set of Jim Thorpe, All-American, ironically a film about a modern Native American man. And so Cecil heard the call, I think his mother actually told him that... Warner Brothers was in town in Oklahoma and they were looking for native extras and his mom thought it would be a good idea if Cecil went to make a little bit of money. So Cecil got there and found that the producers and the casting agents and the director were all upset because they felt that the Oklahoma native people they were encountering were not authentic because of their modernity. And they openly critiqued them. And even though Cecil Mears had experienced this decades ago, it still stung. And he talked about how offended he was by the fact that here he was, a young Native American man in Oklahoma who had been told to excel in education and to advance himself sort of in capitalist American society. And he was actually... Attending college, and he went on to become a medical doctor. And he felt really insulted that they were insulted by his modernity. He sort of felt that he had he had accomplished something that he had been told he must accomplish, and yet he was being criticized for that. So I would say that's sort of the first example I think of is is Cecil. Another example is Robert Yellowtail from the Crow Nation. He worked with the movies with studios on a few different movies. and on one in particular Buffalo Bill, there was these extended negotiations about filming a, a mimicked sun, Sundance, so a version of the Sundance that would not be real. So 20th Century Fox was very interested in filming this, and Robert Yellowtail was interested in native people and crows making some money from this interaction. And so there was these extended negotiations and in the final contract, and I saw different versions of the contract, but in the final contract, 20th century Fox reserved the right to tell crows that they couldn't even wear prescription glasses or sunglasses, that they wanted them to appear basically to be in the 19th century And so people who were used to wearing sunglasses or people who needed prescription lenses had it explicitly denied them in the contract. I mean, to me, that is an example of native people not being allowed to just simply be modern people. And then of course on screen, that's the easiest question to answer on screen The denial of Native modernity was quite easy in that the vast majority of films made about Native people took place in a distant past. Um, And usually that past was not terribly specific.
2: (laughs) So you've taken us on this rather remarkable tour through film production in the 1940s and 50s, and the picture has become rather clear. Racist depictions of Native characters, the sanitization of storylines, and the manipulation of Native peoples and cultures in both past and present were all part of a coordinated effort on the part of studios to produce something they, and their non-Native audiences, considered authentic. In what ways did these projects enable non-natives to claim and command lands, cultures, histories, and identities away from Native peoples? And how do how does film enable these processes of claims and colonization
0: to continue on into the present today? That's a great question, and I think what happens in so many in the films I've studied, and then many films even since then, is that we don't see mainstream films, right? So this book is really about mainstream films. Although I chose those outliers in chapter one, it's really about mainstream films. It's not, it's not about documentaries. There's nothing in this book about documentaries. So I would say that mainstream films continue to leave native people in the past. I would say they continue to hire non-native people to play native people And they continue not to write films in which it's a truly Native story. I mean, I feel that I'm still waiting to see a movie that truly is about Native people with Native actors. And and again, that's excluding documentaries. So the stories that the movies told in the 40s and 50s sort of valorize, I would say, settler colonialism. Even even in interracial the interracial friendship films or the love triangle films, those films, even though they're not Westerns and even though they're challenging some of the fundamentals of Westerns, even those films support them in that they're still sort of a white supremacist narrative and they're still supporting settler colonialism. And in no way, shape, or form are they enabling a conversation about tribal sovereignty or tribal history, a film like, right, I'm cowboy, you know, these comedies or these films in which they're depicting native people. I mean, from my perspective, we need more of that so that there there's this enabling of a space where native people can have conversations with allies about colonization, about land back. And more importantly to me, or not more importantly, but equally important to me is I would like to see film become a real pathway of work for indigenous people, that it would become a space in which native people could actually gain true employment and real power in terms of representation, but also just in terms of salaries.
2: Well, thank you for that. We've taken up a lot of your time today, Liza. Before we wrap up, I just have one last question for you. What are you working on now?
0: I am working on a book that is very different from the first book. My new book is called How to Get Away with Murder, A History of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. So this will be a book that covers mostly the United States, but also Canada and Mexico, And I will be tracking the history of Indigenous, of the murder of Indigenous women through six case studies. So I have written the first case study, which is about Savannah Greywind, who was murdered and her daughter was abducted. She's a citizen of Spirit Lake and Turtle Mountain. And now I'm writing the second chapter about a Native American woman in Oklahoma who was She didn't, she was, she was, she underwent an attempted murder. She was disabled by that attempted murder. And the man who attempted to murder her obtained a guardianship over her. And through that guardianship sold her land to the judge who granted him the guardianship. So this is what I'm writing now. And I'm just deeply committed to this, this new project which doesn't have a direct link to the first, except that I do believe that the devaluation of Native women is sort of central to representations of Native women.
2: Liza, that sounds like another really important project. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.